Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the BJ Psych International Podcast. My name is Sachin. I'm joined today by... Hamilton, and I am a core trainee in London. And I'm just trying to remember if so far I've been introducing myself as Hammy or Hamilton. I feel like I lose track, uh, but either one is fine. <laughs> <laughs> and as long as we're saying what we do, I'm a, I'm a psychiatrist in London. Let's just leave it at that. You're a psychiatrist physically in London. <laughs> well... Are we going to dox you right now, Sachin? <laughs> <laughs> North by northwest, <laughs> longitude, latitude. Um, yeah. And uh, and I say I joined today by I'm always joined by you, Hami. And today we're talking about an article in the BJ Psych International. We're always talking about an article in the BJ Psych International. Why am I? <laughs> we could we could throw a curveball this time. We could just pick a random article in the Lancet. <laughs> so. Today, as always, we're looking at an article from the BJ Psych International Journal, and it is called Sri Lanka's response to prescribed drug misuse. Is it enough? Hami, what's this article about? Well, this article by Dr. Hapangama and Prof. Kuruparachi looks at the current situation in Sri Lanka with regards to misuse of prescribed drugs and whether or not the response from medical authorities as well as legal authorities in Sri Lanka is sufficient and proportional to the current situation. And as we know, misuse of prescribed medication isn't uh, an issue exclusive to Sri Lanka. It's hit the headlines, or I'd say recently, but really over the past four years, we've seen major news articles and documentaries in the public sphere regarding the opioid epidemic or whatever you want to call it. Um, striking several parts of America where there are entire regions where it's so common when sent out on a dispatch call to an emergency to find someone who's overdosed on opioids that even members of the general public will carry around anoxone in case they encounter someone who has overdosed. So HBO did a two-part documentary called The Crime of the Century, which explores the origins, extent, and consequences of america's opioid epidemic and interesting that it's called crime of the century because obviously i mean i can't say anything about who's to fault here but there has been lawsuits in america against pharmaceutical companies such as in the states of oklahoma a lawsuit against purdue pharma where it was argued that purdue pharma helped start the opioid epidemic or opioid crisis because of assertive marketing and deceptive claims about the dangers of addiction. Mm. And if you look at even the website for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, they themselves state that in the late 1990s, pharmaceutical companies reassured the medical community that patients would not become addicted to opioid pain relievers, which just sounds so wild to read that now, and that healthcare providers began to prescribe them at greater rates. An increased prescription of opioid medications led to increased widespread misuse of both prescription and then non-prescription opioids before it became clear that these medications could indeed be highly addictive. And there were like three waves to this opioid misuse. So the first wave was basically prescription opioids, then it was followed by a wave of heroin misuse and then a wave of fentanyl misuse Mm, and gosh i feel like we could do a whole separate episode on fentanyl and the current some people use the term mass hysteria other people would say 
a neuropsychiatric presentation that's observed to have been arising in several members of the American police force upon finding fentanyl in the street, where simply upon coming into proximity with fentanyl, they will collapse on the ground. Obviously, it's a complex issue, but I won't go too much into that. But as an aside, I mean, it's absolutely horrendous what happened. And it's no wonder why there are individuals with distrust in the medical establishment after such heinous alleged crimes. But we're not here today to talk about America. We're here to talk about Sri Lanka and this fantastic article about the situation in Sri Lanka. And before we head into this interview, I would like to just thank Dr. Arani and Prof. Lalith for joining us. We are all aware that the situation in Sri Lanka right now is of intense public unrest, particularly in the city of Colombo, where they're based. And they have been experiencing, in addition to that, rolling blackouts. So, you know, we're really grateful that through all that, they have the time to speak to us. Absolutely. Yeah, we recorded this interview not long after the president of Sri Lanka fled the country. Mm. There's a state of emergency in Colombo right now. Yeah. They did the interview during a state of emergency. No, it's, it's, it's really good of them to, yeah. to give up their time during such a a difficult period. So without further ado, here is the interview with the authors of the article. Um, so my name is Aruni Hapangu. I'm the um, head and also senior lecturer at the Department of Psychiatry, Faculty of Medicine, University of Kalani. I'm also a consultant psychiatrist attached to the North Colombo Teaching Hospital, Sri Lanka. Yeah, I am uh, Professor Lalit Kuruparachi, senior professor of psychiatry and the Kardashia of the University of Kalania Psychiatry Department. And I'm also working as a consultant psychiatrist to North Colombo Teaching Hospital Ragama in Sri Lanka. Excellent. And this paper is focused on the misuse of prescription medication in Sri Lanka. I wanted to start just from the fact that the first mention in the paper, however, is of prescription cannabis, which quite surprised me. So, uh, Sachin, it's not used in the Western medicine, uh, which is practiced in Sri Lanka, like, um, say, in the USA and such. In Ayurvedic medicine practiced in Sri Lanka, cannabis and opium has been used to make various concoctions. So, it's, it's very different from uh, the Western medicine. Yeah, in fact, uh, it has been there for centuries in the Ayurvedic medicine. And in fact, the cannabis has been advertised in various newspapers in, in certain places. And yeah. this, the sentence that follows this is that, however, no measures were initiated to address the non-medicinal use of psychoactive agents in Sri Lanka until the late 1970s. I know this isn't the focus of the paper, but I am just wondering, like, what is the state of prescription of cannabis and opium today uh, in Ayurvedic medicine? Is it regulated or does it continue? There is an act called uh, the Ayurvedic or Indigenous Medicinal Act, which controls the amount of cannabis or opium which can be prescribed by one prescriber and how much it can be prescribed. But the problem in Sri Lanka is most of the things, even though there are acts and rules to govern, might actually not be practiced. Mm. You know, the registered Ayurvedic practitioners 
allowed to grow one plant of cannabis for their use use in medicine mm-hmm. so in fact it is allowed for them to grow the plants not in massive numbers but one plant interesting for one that's interesting thing yes yeah and and we'll get on to the uh, implementation of the legislation in a second but you then go on to mention that the most commonly misused psychotropic agents in Sri Lanka include pethidine tramadol various benzodiazepines cough mixtures which uh, contain oh this is going to test my pronunciation dextro <laughs> dextromethorphan and uh, antipsychotic quetiapine and anticonvulsants slash chronic pain medications such as pregabalin and gabapentin mm. which you know prescribers here will recognize as controlled prescription substances but you also mentioned there's not much data on this so where do we get the sense that these are the medications being misused like are you seeing that in clinics or yeah so in our day to day clinical practice we see patients who come to us who has been using medications such as this which have never been prescribed to them or which has been prescribed to them ages ago or sometimes prescribed to one of their relatives or sometimes because we also do review of prison inmates some of these people buy them off the street especially things like quetiapine pregabalin gabapentin or various benzodiazepines because of their potential to give them you know various psychoactive sort of symptoms which they might enjoy in creating an addiction these drugs are prescribed particularly tramadol and uh, gabapentin and sometimes even uh, Pregabalin, particularly pregabalin and quetiapine, you know, in Sri Lanka for drug addicts and for pain, in the pain clinics also they prescribe. Mm. What is going to happen is these people, they get that from the clinics initially or from the doctor's prescription and subsequently they go hook to these drugs and get them from um, various pharmacies, really. That is what is happening. Most of the drug addicts, drug addicts means heroin or even other drugs. they are prescribed initially and they get dependent on the other drugs that is a major way of getting you know dependent on these drugs mm. i definitely want to ask about how these drugs are procured either on the street or through pharmacies but uh, just in terms of data about the issue and in terms of research about the issue i just wanted to skip to this line that you did say which i found quite striking which is that we believe that prescription drug misuse has reached epidemic proportions in sri lanka what is your sense of it reaching epidemic proportions like you said we do not have any research data regarding this but when we see patients in the clinics or in the wards either in the government sector or the private sector they say doctor i have been on this can you please prescribe that so if we see 10 patients almost say three to four of them may be on either quetiapine or um, especially gabapentin and pregabalin especially in the elderly population mm. sometimes in very youngish people also to get them off is a big problem because they are very used to it they mm. don't want to give it up and when we say it's epidemic because we see a large numbers of patients both young and older using them now you mentioned legislation 
Sri Lanka has several legislations regarding drug control, and these include the Penal Code, the Poisons, Opium and Dangerous Drugs Act, the Cosmetic Devices and Drugs Act, the Customs Ordinance and Indigenous Medicine Act. But what is the regulation of these legislations like? It's quite minimal, if I can say that, because uh, we have the legislations. People are aware of it. So when we become interns, we are being told, and as medical students, we are being told there are these legislation which control the of us writing prescriptions, how many prescriptions we can write. Then there are controlled substances, which we have to be careful in prescribing the amount of tablets or Wiles, which we can prescribe at one go, but most of the time they are not adhered to both by the prescriber and the dispenser and also by the patients. Yeah, I think uh, these legal things or the ethical codes and other guidelines are there, but uh, the practicing doctors also adhere to some extent. But when it comes to the reality, the pharmacies or the dispensers, they are not that particular about things. People can go and ask for the drugs. Say, for instance, pregabalin, they give enough to them. And uh, even the relatives can go to the pharmacy and request for the drugs. That's a real thing, really. Directly without a prescription? prescription? Exactly. Uh. Without a prescription. So that is why we are having problems. Even so, with prescriptions, say now we prescribe, say now, sometimes the people, they take the drugs even for 10 years, if you look at that. The prescription has been given in 2010, but still the people are purchasing the drugs. From the pharmacy that is dispensing. Pharmacy, they do dispense. This is a real problem. It's regard to many drugs in Sri Lanka. And that's the issue with pharmacies. But in terms of prescription, what sort of holes or what sort of things can prescribers get away with because of lax implementation of legislation? So unlike in uh, Western countries, we do not have, um, you know, so for especially the controlled medications as well as the psychotropics, we are not given a limit to say these are the number of tablets you can write in one go, say, um, I can only give this many tablets. But we don't have such a rule to limit our prescriptions. Uh, and also, we don't have an indication. You know, in certain countries, you have to write the indication for a particular tablet mm. in the prescription or whatever you write. But here, they are used for anything from poor sleep to psychotic symptoms to anything basically so the prescriber also can miss you sometimes unfortunately yeah because you know the workload what is going to happen is the prescriber will write prn medication for instance put up in prn mm. or at night prn or sos we call that oils certain other drugs benzodiazepines and we put one month initially and then the prescriber will write another Repeat for another two months or whatever it is. One is because of the workload and because the patients, they can't come back again within a certain period of time. So it is again a real problem. So once you put the repeat, 
the same prescription, the people will go on purchasing the drugs. And the prescriber also has no other way sometimes with the workload. That's the real thing. Even though the guidelines is there, practically, the prescriber as well as the dispenser may find it very difficult to adhere to them. Mm. That's the real thing. Because they can go to any pharmacy in the island to get their prescription filled. And uh, the prescriptions don't have a universal number. We just write in on our own prescription sheets or the private hospital's prescription sheet. Whereas in other countries, they have a specific number to that particular prescription sheet. So it's not controlled in any manner from the prescriber's point of view as well. I mean, is there a potential there for double dispensing? It can be because if I give a prescription to a person, they can go to another pharmacy. So the risk, I know sometimes that's why the risk of overdosing can also happen. You know, you give the prescription, the person can purchase it from one pharmacy and go to another pharmacy because even sometimes they don't uh, put the seal that medication has been dispensed. Mm. Because the fear of shortage of drugs, the patients and the family, they go to the pharmacies, various pharmacies, and collect the drugs for three or four months sometimes. Mm. Nowadays, currency, if you look at current Sri Lanka, many people, they, they, really, they are really worried and they are asking whether these drugs will be available in the future or not. And they go and they collect drugs yeah. months and months. And the pandemic has been an issue in that as well, right? Yeah, because um, like Kurpusa said, pharmacies were closed. People couldn't come to the hospitals because most of our medications we, we get from overseas. Hardly any psychotropic is uh, produced here in Sri Lanka. So what happened with uh, patients and their relatives, because they were afraid that uh, they will not have enough stocks of medication, started to hold them. So that may have also given rise to the issue which we are trying to address. Mm. Also, the prices, I think, uh, skyrocketed Mm. uh, during the pandemic and with the current economic situation, Mm. uh, medications, uh, the prices are so high and we don't have all the medications available in the garment sector, which we we prescribe to the patients. So they can't afford things like metazapine are not available in the garment sector and uh, so we are having problems. So we might have to resort to medications which are not exactly the ideal for a particular patient sometimes. Now, just to go back to this idea of poor implementation of legislation or poor monitoring, I understand also that prescribers are meant to have uh, prescriber IDs which aren't always used. Yes, the SLMC expects, you know, the prescribed to put the name and the qualifications, your position and the SLMC number, as well as then to put the patient's details, like in Western countries, that's the usual expectation. But most of the people, they don't adhere to that expectation. Most of the prescribers will not adhere. And even without that sort of things, the dispensing is going on. So... The government is also not providing proper prescription papers. Mm. Just a piece of paper is used mm. as prescription, really. 
So as far as like the opportunity that presents for misuse of prescription, so say I was a nefarious doctor who just wanted to prescribe opiates or even prescribe for a family member or something like this, and I'm not putting my ID on, so I'm avoiding a paper trail. Like, uh, is anyone gonna get me in trouble over that? Is it is it well regulated? <laughs> Certain drugs are regulated, really, particularly the opium, mm. you know, and uh, even now tramadol cannot be dispensed, really. Dextramethorphan cannot be prescribed, and they can't get that over the counter. Okay, so. Dexamethorphan can be prescribed, but they may not issue that. It is legally prohibited, issuing unnecessarily. For single prescription, they can issue, but repeatedly they don't issue. And OPM, you know, Pethidine, they are not available in the open pharmacies. Right. They, yeah, they don't even have it. But just this idea of a doctor not having, well, they should put their registration number on a prescription. Is anyone making sure that they do? Like, how much trouble can a doctor get into by not abiding by this? No, nothing really. Basically, no one is going to find fault with them. No one has been taken to courts, I think, uh, recently over such a matter because of this. Even the health ministry will not regulate in the, the prescriptions, really. Mm. So they, the prescription may be variable, you know, soon after returning from some other country, the doctor may adhere to almost all the guidelines and prescribe properly. And as the time goes on, you know, things will get gradually, you know, diluted and um, the people may adhere to the usual pattern, really. When we become uh, registered doctors, we are given a unique identification number by the governing authority, which is the Sri Lanka Medical Council. Mm. Uh, and we are supposed to insert that in the prescriptions. Uh, I know most of the consultants do that, but then junior doctors and sometimes um, other practitioners may, may, may not be using this practice, which I think is a good practice because anyone can trace them then. Mm. And then the other side of tracing is for pharmacies to be registered and you mentioned that pharmacists practicing in Sri Lanka should not only have registration but also apply for a certificate of good standing from the mm. Sri Lanka Medical Council. Yeah. How's that going? <laughs> <laughs> so uh so the rules are there. So they have to first get their license and then uh, every couple of years they have to get this a certificate of good standing. However, I don't think anyone is checking whether they have got it or whether they have applied it. Whereas us doctors, um, uh, you know, our medical sort of credentials or applications have to be renewed after a certain period. But for the pharmacist, I'm not sure whether this practice exactly is applied to them. And also, correct me if I'm wrong, sir, some of the pharmacies, at least, it's just it's not a pharmacist who run the practice. It's a dispenser yeah. or uh, someone who basically can read the prescription, which is, again, a big problem. Mm. Yeah, normally there should be a pharmacist, registered pharmacist, but there are subordinates, you know, various. So the pharmacist's name is there, mm. the registered certificate, they hang the certificate also, but there are other people really, other subordinates, they dispense. 
even without the chief pharmacist mm. but for each and every pharmacy there should be a registered pharmacist yeah and then yeah. you train your focus on to mental health professionals or basically in psychiatry the lack of mental health professionals and mm. how this impacts on the push towards patients taking medications we have about 0.52 psychiatrists per 100,000 population our clinics and our ward settings are quite busy so if we talk of a clinic we see about 10 new patients within a 2 hour period and in our follow up clinic areas which um, do the follow up thing there are about 250 patients who are seen by about 3 to 4 medical officers or postgraduate trainees so the time we have to spend per patient is quite small so we try to resort to biological methods basically medication or psychotropics rather than the you know psychological principles which means we'll be using more and more prescriptions to help the patients symptoms so more prescriptions are written whereas in reality it would have been sometimes better to spend more time with the patient mm. to help with the symptoms which we do not unfortunately have Yeah, this is really interesting, really, um, because lack of time, almost all the psychiatrists they adhere to psychopharmacological interventions, and at the same time, the patients also they will expect psychopharmacological things from all the almost all the psychiatrists, really. So psychotherapeutic interventions are minimum. That's what is happening in Sri Lanka at the moment. And you mentioned patient expectations, and that was your next. focus is the role of the patient and what their expectations are say self medication habits amongst patients that contribute towards medication overuse so it's not always all the patients who do self medicate but some of the patients and even medical students you know that um, they use uh, sleeping tablets or anti anxiety medications to relieve their symptoms and if they have seen it being practiced by a family member or a friend and it has been useful they might use the other person's prescription or even without a prescription and go to a pharmacy to self medicate i think it's happening quite um, commonly if i'm not mistaken yeah i think it, it is happening widely you know they misuse the prescriptions and medication and in fact they treat themselves really and the relatives also after <laughs> i have seen the mothers of uh, you know we treat for depressed patient and they Can't know the name of the medication. Say certainly, and whenever there is a patient who has symptoms, suggestive or some psychiatric symptom or whatever, they give them certainly. <laughs> so there is maybe a culture of rather than medication decisions being a collaborative one between doctor and patient, for it to be purely patient-led or centered. Yeah. <laughs> so you move on. to discuss what regulations are required to deal with these issues this epidemic of prescription medication misuse what do you feel is required for example with regards to agency oversight and regulations like we said earlier sachin i think what we need is we already have the rules it's just that no one is implementing them or monitoring them mm. so if the prescribers and the dispensers and the patients know these rules are going to be implemented and there will be not just fines but heavy fines if they are not adhered to 
I think there are more chances of all the stakeholders adhering to the rules. So there are these various acts which you read earlier, the Cosmetics and Drugs Act, the Dangerous Drugs Act. So people are, I mean, the prescribers and the dispensers are both very well aware of this because it's part of their learning when they are students. Mm. Can you comment on the actual enforcement of these rules in terms of law enforcement or any agencies that are required to enforce? Mm-hmm. Like, is that there in place? Is there capacity to uh, do that? So the agencies which will be involved are the Sri Lanka Medical Council who give us the prescriber numbers and also to the pharmacies, their registration numbers. And then there is the health ministry, uh, which some of the doctors are employed under. In addition, there are other law enforcement agencies which sort of are involved in acting on the various acts which we mentioned earlier. So it has to be a collaborative effort rather than one single agency because I don't think at the current moment any of those agencies have enough people to deal with it. I'm not sure whether they even have subcommittees to look into this because they have subcommittees to appoint interns, look after their you know, various inquiries and things. But when there's a complaint, they will act on it. Like, for example, which Professor Guru Parachi earlier mentioned, the uh, Corex D or the dextromethorphan epidemic we had, which led to death of several young people, mm. which made the government take measures to prohibit its dispensing. So likewise, rather than waiting for such a calamity to occur, I think it's, it's quite the high time for all these people to get together and for maybe subcommittees and appoint people to look into this island-wide, not just in one area, because then irregularities can happen in other parts of the country. I think, uh, I don't know, theoretically, that's very excellent, really, if you look at that. <laughs> but yeah. in Sri Lanka, at the moment, if you look at the current Sri Lanka, yeah. right? But unfortunately, good old days, you know, we managed to do many things and unfortunately mm. nowadays, in fact, the therapists sometimes encourage the patients to go beyond the prescribed period and so on. If you look at the current prevailing situation yeah. in Sri Lanka. Yeah, and I, I hear you say, what you say, sir, you know, we write the prescription, we say if it's difficult for you to come, go to the pharmacy um, and, and get uh, the medication filled for another month. But uh, hopefully... One day when things are better here. Yeah. yeah. One day, yes, sir. One day, <laughs> blue sky thinking. Yeah. I, um, <laughs> and then in terms of monitoring and auditing, how hard are we watching this? What needs doing mm. there? So I think, uh, again, that this is where the research and um, auditing processes do come in, both in hospitals and pharmacies, which hardly ever happens apart from taking account of medications which needs to be ordered for a hospital per year. And also we know how many medications were not used for that particular year from what was ordered. However, I don't think any other things such as prescription patterns, errors which have happened, side effects which have happened, I do not think any such thing is being monitored either in the hospitals or pharmacies, whereas in other countries, these things are monitored. So that is one of the other areas which we need to look into in regularizing these issues. 
and you yeah. mentioned the need for an online prescription drug monitoring system to integrate pharmacists and medical practitioners especially given the current situation and during the covid pandemic also i think it will be quite useful because we have a very good internet system all of the country and most of the pharmacists and the prescribers do have links so if if we are connected to a sort of a unique system it could be easily monitored also from a central authority and the pharmacists can liaise with the prescribers to check regarding the prescriptions and as well as the monitoring agency can monitor what we are doing and what the pharmacies are doing yeah i think in the future it will be a good thing really mm when the things are getting better mm. to monitor at the moment i think in the health ministry they can get to know about the number of drugs available yeah. and things through the internet yeah the pharmacies uh, they i think collect it every year so especially during this current economic situation we had a system where we looked into how many tablets of say clozapine we have how many we need to order so we are aware of that but i think to regularize that and also to prevent side effects to monitor side effects we need to have a better sort of a system the other area of improvements you mention is improving public awareness and currently drug education is more geared towards let's say street drugs or illicit substances right what would need to change I think it has to come from a very early stage or a age of people to make them aware you know there are these substances which have an addictive potential and the harm which can occur in addition about getting proper prescriptions from a proper prescriber not to use other people's prescriptions the harm which may befall them I don't think most people are aware of that and also even if they are aware sometimes they may use it because they don't know the repercussions at the same time this compared to western countries in our countries particularly in sri lanka the patients are not explain the side effects and the nature of the drug most of the people they just give the prescription some consultants and some doctors they explain so in fact some patients they are not aware of the nature of the medication even some of them are not aware of the name of the medication mm. so it is another problem but we need to have a proper man power you know the doctors and people to educate these people really yeah and your paper mentions that similar campaigns have been reported to be effective elsewhere and it truly is a global issue in terms of especially if you think about like the opiate crisis prescription opiates uh even in you know countries like America where there is a you know substantial need for public education about the effects of these medications and finally i mean you already touched on the need for further research uh what would you feel is lacking in terms of data at the moment like i said sachin we have hardly any data especially island wide data we might have from various local hospitals these are the issues we are having but we don't have island wide data which is um, collected by the health ministry as to the issues we are having so it, someone needs to come forward and funding needs to be arranged and it might not happen during the next few years because of the issues we are experiencing at the moment but it is something which needs to be done so that we have a good data system to say okay these are the medications which are being misused by people and these are the things which we can do for that 
Yeah, I think I totally agree with Arun. We don't have data at all, really, with regard to this area. And we are just highlighting this important area just to make the people aware of the thing. So it is a long way to go, really, long way to go. It may take years and years after recovery of Sri Lanka, recovering from this economic crisis. Mm. Well, I'd like to thank you both for taking me through this paper. It literally does illustrate quite a striking problem when you just look at all the laxities and holes which can be exploited for misuse of medication, which need repairing. Is there anything that you would like to add to wrap up? Just want to say thank you for asking us for this podcast. No, of course, yeah. it's been very interesting. And uh, Prof. Lalith? Yeah, I think we have discussed almost all the areas briefly. And uh, this, uh, how practical is these things are is a problem for our country at the moment. Right? So we'll have to wait and see what is going to happen. And uh, it's good that we highlighted some of the important areas in this aspect. So thank you very much, Sajin, for your kind help. Definitely. it's a, uh, And I shouldn't just say it's interesting. It's, it's quite striking and uh, an important health issue rather than just being a topic of interest. So thank you very much once again. Thank Goodbye. You. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. And that again was Dr. Aroni and Prof. Lalith. Thanks to them for joining us once more. As I mentioned, at a time of significant public unrest in the city of Colombo in Sri Lanka, where very recently the president of the country has been forced to flee the country. I mean, that really does tie in as well to what they were saying about once things settle down, we can focus on this issue. And that just really makes me appreciate how at times of quote-unquote peacetime, we can focus on these sorts of issues about the medical system. But when you look at global psychiatry, it shows you how you can change your priorities very drastically, very quickly. Absolutely. I mean, it comes back to Maslow's hierarchy of basic needs, right? If people are in a situation where their ability to gain basic nutrition, food and water and a place to sleep is impacted, of course, those are going to be the priorities at that moment in time. Mm. Of course, volatile global situations in themselves can also worsen or worse than at least in this particular example, crises relating to use of medications, there's a large number of medications that actually are synthesized, manufactured in Ukraine. Mm. Not exclusively, but large amounts are synthesized there. And I did recall reading recently that part of the reason that there's a shortage of hormone replacement therapy, specifically estrogen-based hormone replacement therapy, is the fact that there was at least a plant producing estrogen in Ukraine, which now, obviously, the global situation of the war in Ukraine has meant that there's been a reduce of the output there. But yes, we don't exist in a bubble. Everything, the global political situation, impacts upon everything else, unfortunately. And this situation of political unrest in Sri Lanka, I wouldn't assume that to be like isolated to Sri Lanka. I mean, this is something that could very quickly be seen in many countries around the world and not to mention the UK is going through its own cost of living crisis but these sorts of issues it's almost like a canary in the um, coal mine in terms of 
issues with worldwide grain supply, issues with drought that is affecting Central Africa, climate change in general. As you mentioned, the Russia-Ukraine conflict, China suffering crop shortages during winter, India suffering crop shortages due to heat waves. There's going to be a lot of... Um, well, untold amounts of human suffering. Yeah, which you know is going to really alter the priorities in terms of what we focus on, in terms of healthcare, really. Mm. But for today, let's focus on misuse of prescribed medications. Now, there's one thing that <laughs> jumped out to me, and I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I wanted to ask you, Sachin, what do you know about misuse of quetiapine? Because this article in the interview was the first time I've heard about it. I mean, I'm familiar with pregabalin and gabapentin having street value as drugs that have had to now become controlled drugs because of the fact that people were selling them and misusing them. But quetiapine, I've never come across anyone using that, I guess, for pleasure or using that outside of when it's been prescribed in a psychiatric setting. I myself am not aware of any recreational use of quetiapine, but then I wouldn't assume that all these drugs are misused just because of recreational reasons. But certainly within practice, and usual disclaimer, not because of me, but you do see patients who are on quetiapine and various psychiatric medications outside of their licensed indication. Sure, sure. So our good friend, Dr. Google, to the rescue. I have just done a search, and actually, in the literature, there are papers about the intentional recreational abuse of quetiapine, and apparently it's often used together with other substances, such as cocaine or other substances that upregulate the sympathetic system, to enhance their effects or to help treat oneself for withdrawal, which yeah. is interesting. Fair enough. That's got to be some niche usage, I'm sure. But who knows, really? I do think that quetiapine probably plays under the other definition of misuse, which Dr. Aroni and Prof. Lalit described, which is that maybe you see that a relative is on it and it's worked for them and you use their prescription to get some of your own. Or maybe you've seen that it's used at night. You know, and, and Prof. Lalit described the situation of prescribing quetiapine PRN as needed. So, you know, something that you might use as a hypnotic. So there could be various reasons why someone would go to a pharmacy and request a quetiapine, I suppose, beyond a supposed recreational use, for sure. Mm. Well, I always learn so many things with these interviews, Sachin. <laughs> but it is worrying, right? Because, like... You know, you think about like all the blood tests you're meant to do, all the ECGs you're meant to do around prescribing antipsychotics, and you can just like get them over the counter. It's just a different ball game entirely, and you just worry about like unregulated use of such a medication. I mean, quetiapine for one, but then you know, especially medications like pregabalin, gabapentin. Yeah, and I do worry quite a bit. Obviously, you know about opioids because we've discussed the opioid crisis, but benzodiazepines. Mm. And it's something, I'm currently doing a job in older adult mental health in the community. And because many of these patients have been in the system for a long time, 
I mean, thankfully, actually, it's it's rarer than I thought it would be, which is good. But you do sometimes meet patients who they've been on benzodiazepines for a very long time. And it's so difficult for them to stop because there is that dependence. And obviously, we know that these drugs can cause harm and also increase risk of falls. And if one is to withdraw, that can be very dangerous, similar to alcohol withdrawal. Yeah, just the thought that people can get them quite easily. Yeah, that set off alarm bells in my head as a clinician. And these are all sort of thoughts that place the onus on the patient to not misuse the medication, not to lead their own medication pathway, and not to exploit the holes in the prescription system. But then there's the mental health care side of things, which is imagine that you are a psychiatrist who has limited time to see the patient, limited frequency to see the patient. Maybe they're traveling very far as well. And you don't have much capacity, say, for long-form psychological treatment. Maybe you're going to be pressured into saying, well, okay, I need to prescribe you something. I need to prescribe you. And, you know, uh, if you run out, yeah, just please go get some more. And it can turn mm. into a whole habit. Absolutely. I mean, because I'm imagining like an outpatient situation, but it just reminds me of how, and it's bad practice, and I don't think we've not come across it, but you hear stories of people being called to just prescribe Zopiclone because the patient's walking around and hasn't gone to bed yet. And obviously, Z drugs and benzodiazepines do help with sleep, but the quality of the sleep that you get is worse. And sometimes, usually, you should try and exhaust non-pharmacological methods beforehand. Of course, it's difficult if staffing is stretched and people are under pressure. But in ideal circumstances, you'd walk that patient or relative around, try to tie them out naturally and then encourage them to get to bed and try other methods as well. And it's a difficult situation and one doesn't envy people who do face pressure and are stretched. But over-prescription of these, well, dangerous medications or medications that can be dangerous if misused isn't the answer. And in all this, we're looking at unintentional harm that would come to the patient due to all these things. But there's also the side of the intentional harm of, say, self-poisoning using medications, which is why in the UK, for example, you can't buy lots of paracetamol at once. Whereas in the US, my brother sent me a picture of this, you can buy a whole jar of paracetamol. It's scary how much paracetamol you can buy at once in the US. Acetaminophen. Yeah, yeah. Like, I've seen the pictures of the jars. Yeah, under a different name, but still, yeah. Paracetamol. Uh, which, that's wild to me that you can do that in America. But that led me to find this article called Accidental and Deliberate Self-Poisoning with Medications and Medication Errors Among Children in Rural Sri Lanka. And that's in the Emergency Medicine International Journal. One factor that is implicated in pharmaceutical products being the leading cause of accidental poisoning in middle and high income countries is the free availability of over the counter medications. And just looking at what they mention about over the counter medications, they say that it is likely that poisoning patterns have changed with change in prescription practices, socio cultural factors, and increased use and storage of over-the-counter medications at home. And this is listing even more issues that might crop up. You know, We haven't even talked about potential drug-drug interactions. Say you buy your own medications, You know, do you know how they're going to interact with the medications you're already on? There, there can be so many issues that crop up because of this. 
Absolutely. It says the most common group of medications that resulted in poisoning was analgesics, and the most common analgesic was paracetamol. Most analgesics are available as over-the-counter medications in the community, and almost every household uses them to get relief from pain. So, I mean, obviously, paracetamol is over-the-counter here as well, but regulated. Well, where there's a will, there's a way, right? But, yeah. yeah. Many mothers were worried about their child's illness and freely offered over-the-counter medicines such as paracetamol to control pain, fever, and subsequent febrile convulsions. These anxieties need to be admitted, though simultaneously, with providing accurate advice on doses and harmful effects of commonly used over-the-counter medicines. So this was them mentioning that poor parental education and anxiety about the illness of the child can play an effect too. And, you know, that was something that our authors raised, which was, you know, the need for public education about medications over the counter and prescribed medications, which I'm seeing a lot now. Again, I keep saying even in America, but like in America, there's lots of public education about prescription opioids. Whereas, you know, usually think about drug misuse education as being about illicit substances, street substances, recreational drugs. But no, they're having to teach young people in schools, that this is what opioids can do to you. So be careful. Mm. Not that opioids aren't also a recreational street illicit drug, but, you know, prescription opioids. So recently a game came out that lets youngsters roleplay their way through various scenarios about dealing with prescribed opioid medications. And the aim is to increase safety around that. So... There's always something uncomfortable about putting the onus on the patient when we're the ones with the power to keep people safe. But there is that element, obviously, of public education that's needed as well. Well, of course, because one doesn't wish to be paternalistic. It's a collaboration. Patients should feel empowered to make decisions regarding their own health care. But it's our duty as clinicians to ensure that those Decisions are informed by the best level of available evidence based on the patient's preferences of how they like to be informed and take information. And, you know, we have a duty to try and prevent harm wherever possible. Mm. And so this game, and I'm quite excited because I do like the interaction between video games and mental health. There's an article in the Washington Post, which is titled, A Yale Doctor is Using a Video Game to Fight the Opioid Crisis. And the key quote here is that, in addition to imparting players with info that can help them avoid drug misuse, the game also provides data to researchers based on the player's decisions to inform drug awareness and prevention programs. So that's a very interesting development in America. Mm. So we're both members of Gaming the Mind, and we believe that video games are vastly underused resource and have a lot of untapped potential in terms of education for the public, but also medical education. And as a medium in general, they have the capacity to communicate information in quite a natural way. But I'm just a little skeptical about how much one can achieve in that specific area with a video game. I don't know. I feel like, I mean, education is always important. Like, it's obviously not doing harm. But, like, for me, maybe it reflects, like, how scary I find these issues. But I feel like without actual changes in, in legislation you're quite limited in like the impact that you can have it's just like a drop in the ocean 
it needs to be kind of a systems-wide approach. But I don't know. What do I know? No, no, I agree. And, you know, you say changes in legislation. Well, that's half of this paper is the legislation is there, but not implemented. And you think like, well, what limited role can public education play when the system is stacked? Like, we've learned through the... Maybe you haven't learned this. Maybe you already knew this, but it's reinforced to us through the COVID pandemic that people are going to do what they're allowed to do. And sometimes people are going to do what they're not allowed to do, but people are definitely going to do what they're allowed to do. So if the government say you no longer need to wear masks on public transport, people will just stop wearing masks on public transport, you know? Yeah, no, I've been at work and we no longer have to wear masks at work. And that makes sense because that's just how, how the thing, way things are going. But I've chosen to continue wearing a mask because personally, since I've started wearing a mask, I've not gotten as many colds as I used to get. And I've, I've had yes, colleagues say, oh, you know, you're still wearing a mask. And it's, it's not like challenging. It's just like an observation. And I explain why I'm still wearing it. And, you know, I'm comfortable in that. But actually, the numbers of cases are rising again. And I'm having more colleagues say, yeah, no, I'm going to start wearing a mask again as well. So it's kind of, but on the whole, most people generally go with the flow, right? With what they're allowed to do. Mm. If everyone else is doing it and it's fine, then I too shall do it. That kind of path. Yeah. And like you, I don't know what impact now that we're on this topic yeah a video game could have on this sort of education but yeah i think the point to raise just about that is the fact that it's a thing that needs doing like this was a need that is identified that young people adolescents in america need teaching about opioids Mm. the quote from one of the makers is the more you know that something is dangerous the less likely you are to do it said a professor at the yale school of medicine Noting that many opioids are prescription drugs and can sometimes be found in homes. Just the idea that they recognize that, okay, there are harmful substances in people's homes because of how these substances are prescribed that we now need to teach people and keep them safe. Yeah, if it is targeting children and it's mainly preventative, then I can see how there's certainly merit in that. As it's important to educate at a young age on such a vital issue. Like, I'm conscious that I've said, in my opinion, legislation, in theory, would be the answer to this issue, but I am conscious that there are parts of the world where the situation has almost gone too far the other way, and I'm reminded of a 2015 article in The Lancet about the consequences of Russia's war on drugs, and how, unfortunately the pendulum has swung too far in the opposite direction and that there are many, many cases of individuals who have insufficient pain relief with figures suggesting that in 2009, which at the time was the latest figures that they had for the paper, only 15% of 217,000 or so terminally ill patients with cancer or HIV who needed opioid pain relief actually received them. And individuals have to jump through many, many hoops in order to get the pain relief that they require to the extent that people are suffering enormously, even quite high-profile figures. The former head of the rocket artillery unit of Russia's naval forces ended his own life um, because 
of the excruciating pain he was in and inability for him and his family to acquire the opioid-based pain relief that he required. So, I mean, it's all about balance, right? But one does have to remember that these medications are used for a reason and people can suffer incredibly if they're not given means by which to alleviate their pain or other symptoms mm. in an attempt to, I guess, be overly defensive. One must always use their clinical judgment and, and try to help the individual in, in front of them as best they can. Did you get a reason as to why opioids are underused in Russia? It's just because, like, if it's underused in palliative medicine, I don't know what the rationale would be. So, or at least according to the article that I've read, amongst many Russian doctors, especially in palliative care, there's a belief that they will speed up the process and patients will die as a result. Which, of course, as we know, when you sensibly is not the case. And everyone has a right to live without pain. And failing to manage someone's pain is an enormous injustice and an act of cruelty, really, mm. if in my opinion. Interesting. That's a different rationale, isn't it, in terms of, like, they're not worried about it causing addiction? Obviously, that's the reason that's given, but my understanding is there is also a fear of misuse and overprescribing and wanting to combat illicit use of these medications, but it's a clearly a complex issue. Yeah. Hmm. And you talk about restrictive analgesic prescribing practices, and it does make me think of also how the fair prescription of analgesics can be unequal according to demographic. So we all know that black people are less likely to be prescribed pain medication, possibly because they are erroneously seen as having a higher pain threshold. And then more related to pharmacies, I got this article from the New England Journal of Medicine called We Don't Carry That, Failure of Pharmacies in Predominantly Non-White Neighbourhoods to Stock Opioid Analgesics, which starts that they have observed that many black and Hispanic patients receiving palliative care at a major urban teaching hospital in New York are unable to obtain prescribed opioids from their neighbourhood pharmacies. So they study the availability of the opioids and find that pharmacies in predominantly non-white neighbourhoods of New York City do not stock sufficient medications to treat patients with severe pain adequately, disproportionately compared to in white neighbourhoods. So yeah, there really is like this concerning sort of idea of restriction of adequate pain relief to certain communities. Mm. This is in their conclusion. Pharmacists gave three chief reasons for having inadequate supplies of opioids. Regulations with regard to disposal, illicit use, and fraud. Low demand, and fear of theft. So, you know, again, it shows you like how regulations there can almost then harm the communities they're meant to be serving. Because suddenly now they're afraid of the illicit use. They're afraid of how such medications can infiltrate communities but there's people who need those medications so it's such a balancing act and also again very sort of unfair that these sort of concerns apply only to certain neighborhoods mm, absolutely just real distrust mm. anyway that's really opened up some interesting areas that i'd not thought extensively about I think it's an issue that, in the same way, I know when we do 
mandatory training and we get the question you know whose responsibility is safeguarding and you get all these different options and the right option is it's all of our responsibility and i feel it's it's the same when it comes to obviously it's our responsibility to that patient as an individual when we're prescribing but on a larger scale we all have a duty to ensure that we're prescribing medications safely and proportionally but most importantly looking at the individual in front of us and i feel that it's very easy to kind of be afraid and take a blanket approach and say this is what i do like i don't oh like i'm afraid to prescribe oxycodone there are some patients who need oxycodone you know they might not be able to tolerate other forms of opioids because of their renal functional or whatnot and one can never just have a simple blanket policy of this drug is scary and dangerous i won't prescribe it but at the same time you know no one should be prescribing them like smarties it's always one should never switch off their brain and just blindly follow an established i guess uh well rules exist to help guide us but you always have to look at the person in front of you to make sure that you're making the right decision for them and I guess to try and avoid the pendulum swing too far one way or the other. But what a privileged thing that is to be able to do. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, to have the, the time and exactly. the, the resources to do so. Exactly. It is a privilege. Yeah. And after all, consider the fact that Dr. Aroni said that they see 10 new patients in two hours. I can't do that. <laughs> I'd need to significantly change the way I work to be able to do that. I mean, that's, you know, that's... Yeah, that's astonishing. <laughs> I mean, I've met GPs who do that, and it's still shocking, but that's not the norm over here. And I feel like I wouldn't have, the, I guess, cognitive capacity to be able to deal with, you know, making so many different decisions for so many different individuals in such a short span of time. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's impressive, and uh, it's a shame that that needs to be the case. I guess you can call it impressive. I just say it's like, you know doing what they can is like like it's impressive if they do everything that that you could do in 30 and 10 but it's probably not possible yeah maybe impressive is the wrong word but one yeah one acknowledges that it's not an easy task yeah there's a recurring theme in many of these podcasts it makes us realize that we are in a privileged position in terms of especially patients per doctor and number of doctors and training pathways and whatnot it's uh yeah we always have to take that into account anyway that was an interesting conversation honey uh thank you all for joining us <laughs> if i do say so myself i found it interesting <laughs> no I, I certainly found the interview and the article interesting and, and the conversation wasn't you know it wasn't bad <laughs> maybe you you've all fallen asleep by now in which case wake up uh the podcast's over thank you for joining us i've been sachin and i have been hammy slash hamilton <laughs> and this has been the bj psych international podcast see you next time bye thank you for listening to this bj psych international podcast for the latest updates follow us on twitter at the bj psych to listen to more podcasts from the bj psych journal portfolio visit us on soundcloud or search for us online <laughs>